When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since mirror tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Uh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh yeah. Hello and welcome to the Rational Black Thought Podcast I'm your host, Neo Grio, and this is episode number 165 It is December the 2nd, 2023 And the title for the episode this week is a quote from Tom Burrell. Tom Burrell was um, the owner of one of the first black media companies. And then after that was an author on um, essentially social media or not social media, but media related um, social justice issues. And the quote is negative media reinforcements affect how young blacks view themselves. Uh, Again, that's negative media reinforcements affect how young blacks view themselves. So let's go ahead and get to the agenda, and I'll tell you why I selected that for the title. And it's directly related to my uh, philosophy segment this this week, which is very similar to what I used to call what's on my mind. And what I'm going to talk about is prompt engineering the mind. So um, several uh, uh, episodes ago, I did talk about prompt engineering, which is a the process of asking AI questions in a way to get uh, appropriate uh, answers and to minimize and or eliminate um, any uh, distortions. And so what I'm going to talk about now is the fact that we need to use similar techniques uh, for our own self-talk to prompt engineer our mind for uh, the right responses. And so that'll be what we have in the philosophy segment. In the news this week, I'm going to talk about three topics. Uh, The first is um, about a phrase that I heard while listening to uh, one of the news shows last week, and that is that Obama was the embodiment of hope for some and the embodiment of fear for others. After that, uh, I'm going to talk about um, uh, just something that uh, was uh, a quote from a lyric uh, from Erica Baidu, which um, I, I, last week I, we did go to a concert to see her, and it's the the quote is it's them dirty cops, them the ones you need to watch. And then last up in the news, I'm just uh, titling it uh, the story Christian values. And so that's what we have on our agenda this week. Um, we'll close out uh, with a story that I'm calling not a handout. This is a hand up. So that's what we have on our agenda. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to philosophy with prompt engineering for the mind. Thank you. 
right, welcome back and welcome to my philosophy. And like I said in the intro, the title this week is Prompt Engineering of the Mind. And what I want to do, though, is to just start with a full quote from Tom Burrell, since I used a sub uh, segment of it um, for the overall episode title. And that quote is, Negative media reinforcements not only influence how cops, judges, employers, and others view black males, they affect how young black males view themselves. And again, that's a quote from Tom Burrell. Now, this is not just a matter of external negative influences or reinforcements. It's a matter of negative self-talk and an ingestion of faulty ideologies. Now, what does this negativity do to us? Now, here's a statement from an article written by a hospice care worker about what those in her care said that they most regretted at the end of their lives. Quote, for eight years, Bonnie Ware was an in-home caregiver who looked after people who were dying. Her clients knew they were severely ill and most were in the last three to 12 weeks of their lives. But Ware gradually realized that the most important role she was playing was not physical, but emotional. She was there to listen, and she cataloged those intimate reflections in her, bro- in her book, quote, The Top uh, Five Regrets of the Dying. In their last days, many of her patients shared with her their regrets. The most common answer, according to Ware, was, quote, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself not the life others expected of me, end quote. So prompt engineering your mind can help you to avoid the regret of not living your own life, uh, but to to start with that process, to start prompt engineering, you have to know what life it is that you want to live so that you can prompt your mind to give you that rather than just living the life uh, that others want for you. So our minds are teleological in nature, and though that word has several meanings, what I mean by that is that the brain is a goal-seeking mechanism. The primary purpose of the brain or the mind, and there is a difference between the two, but I really don't want to get into that in this week's um, uh, episode. But the primary purpose of the brain or the mind is survival. To survive, the brain has evolved to provide quick answers, answers to questions, and it has It is optimized, that is, the brain and the mind are optimized for speed over accuracy. Now, that is a concept that was discussed in Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Fast thinking is is synonymous with a snap judgment. It is necessary for survival, but it is often wrong. Uh, As an example, it's like when you jump back because you thought you saw a snake, but when you're a safe distance away, you see that it was just a stick. So, That didn't really help you, but if it had been a snake, then you would have saved yourself a lot of pain and agony. So because you thought you saw a snake, uh, but when you were a safe distance away, you see there was just a stick. You see that there was no uh, that that um, that that fast thinking was actually wrong. uh, But if it had been right, it would have saved you. Slow thinking is related to critical thinking and rational thought. It is hard to do and it is tedious, but it produces the right answer far more often than than thinking fast. In our world today, most people default to fast thinking processes and then they get their news from a two-minute 
or less video on TikTok or a tweet on X, uh, formerly Twitter. And that shit is more often than not wrong, but people today tend to run with it anyway because it provides quick answers and, and also because it uh, most often confirms something that they already believe. So one of the major reasons that we focus on fast thinking is that we ask ourselves wrong questions. We ask questions that confirm our biases and generate a predetermined response. Now, several episodes ago, I provided a lesson on prompt engineering as it relates to using AI, and AI is prone to producing what are called hallucinations, and that is utterly false information. And that happens based on what you ask the AI. You have to be skilled in asking AI questions in a way that produces unbiased results that are aligned with reality. Our brains are still, at least as of this moment, vastly more powerful than any AI, but it is also prone to hallucinations based on bad prompting and based on fast thinking. So let me give you an example of what I mean. If you make a mistake and ask yourself, you know, why do I always make stupid mistakes? If that's your self-talk. So you made a mistake and, you, and the question that you ask yourself is, why do I always make stupid mistakes? Your brain, teleological in nature and prime for a fast response, will give you an answer. Probably something along the lines of, you've been a fuck up since the day you were born. Your daddy was, a stupid, uh, was stupid and your mother was ignorant. And it is no wonder that you can never do anything right. But if instead you ask yourself, what can I do to prevent making this kind of mistake in the future, you will get a better and more productive answer to that question than you would for asking why you're so stupid. That is specifically uh, the, 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 the answer that you will get if you ask, how can I prevent making mistakes in the future will be specifically related to preventing that kind of mistake in the future. So your, your brain will review your past history and come up with answers on how you can avoid making that mistake, uh, that mistake in the future. So the person that we talk to uh, most often on a day-to-day -day basis is ourselves. It is our self-talk that is the way that we prompt our mind or our brain to produce answers. And if we constantly prompt the brain to use fast thinking, we will always be off and running, uh, but in the wrong direction. Now, to further this discussion, I'm going to use two articles, an article from uh, media.com written by Clive Thompson titled The Psychology uh, or the Psychological Weirdness of Prompt, Prompt Engineering. Uh, and a blog post by Aswath Krishnan titled How to Use Prompt Engineering to Rewire Your Brain. So let's start with uh, Mr. Thompson's article. Quote, prompt engineering is a funny phrase, isn't it? It is the term of, uh, of art when you feed a textual prompt to an AI like uh, DAL-E or Mind Journey, which are, are, are AIs that are used to uh, create um, uh, graphics. Uh, and so, and and so, it, it, that prompt engineering is the term that you use when you feed a textual prompt to those uh, the, to those AI applications to get it to produce a picture, or when you ask a code generating AI uh, like uh, the one called Copilot to write software. Now, calling this process engineering, the author says, makes it sound precise and logical. But if you go to the Mind Journey Discord um, uh, community and watch people issuing prompts, you'll find stuff like this. Galaxy arising from a brain, 8K octane render, micro detailed, up beta, test creative. 
My teeth are yellow. Hello, world. Would you like me a little better if they were white like yours? Dash S5000 Q2 up beta version 3. HG higher Lovecraft nightmarish realm where monsters eternally reign terror. Chaos corrupted and once Valor Knight transforming them into a powerful villain. Horns bursted from their heads. Wing and, wings and tails grew from their sides. Fingers and toes grew into claws. This is what does the void does. This is how life loses and on and on. So there is definitely a method to prompt writing, but it feels less like a methodical form of engineering than someone casting about for the right magical incantations, uh, incantations, having accidentally misplaced their spell book and thus uh, button mashing things a bit. Or perhaps more interestingly, prompt writing seems like a human trying to coax an eager but befuddled pack animal to do our bidding. We think it's understanding what we're saying, but we're using a lot of jazz hands and excitable shouting to make sure. So that makes for a very strange moment in history, in the history of AI. For decades, AI labored, uh, not always, but often under the shadow of the Turing test. And I have talked about that in the past. Past The idea of a Turing test is that a smart AI would be one that behaved and communicated precisely like a clever human. Uh, and under the Turing idea, an artificial life form could be considered intelligent if it could, say, capably discuss current events. Most recently, we've extended this clear, precise natural language ex expectation to everyday devices. We talk to Siri um, and other uh, AIs in everyday cadences, asking for the weather or to set timers, etc. But talking to AI that generates art, uh, or code, or even produces like ChatGPT, anything like a narrative, is uh, far more consequential. Uh, if you're just you, if you're just BSing around with an online chatbot and it loses the thread, then who cares? Uh, if you're just darking around, no big deal. It can if it can't follow a conversation about the NBA. But if we have in mind a specific creation that we're trying to get the AI to produce, if we're trying to get it to write a particular blog post with a specific constant, uh, content and style, then we need to make sure that we can communicate with it. In other words, if you want an AI to produce what you are trying to create, then you know, have to know how to communicate with it in order to get it to follow your instructions. So that means we have to start worrying about what the AI is thinking, or rather how it thinks. We have to de develop what psychologists would call a theory of mind for the machine. Uh, and it's a very foreign intelligence, right? As and uh, Andre Karpathy, a co-founder of OpenAI, said when talking about Copilot, quote, it's not something that you're used to. It's not like human theory of mind. It is like an alien artifact that came out of this massive optimization. And to be clear, uh, the author says, I'm not saying that AIs are actually conscious or intelligent or anything. They're just very subtle pattern recognizers and sequence completers, a rolling uh, wine dark sea of math. But because we're issuing the commands to them in words, it puts us in what winds up being a deeply and weirdly psychological relationship, trying to suss out what's going on inside the AI in order to produce what we want to produce. And so though AIs have a different theory of mind than a human, we still need to use prompt engineering uh, to prompt engineer our own minds to get the res results we want. So just 
as with an AI, and more so because our creations are even more consequential than any that we could produce through the current um, uh, status of AI capabilities, we have to understand how our minds work to be able to communicate with it to produce what is beneficial to us rather than what is neutral or detrimental. So what is a theory of mind? From verywellmind.com, Quote, in psychology, theory of mind is an important social cognitive skill that involves the ability to think about mental states, both your own and those of others. It encompasses the ability to attribute mental states, including emotions, desires, beliefs, and knowledge, and recognize that other people's thoughts and beliefs may differ from yours. Theory of mind considers the factors that have led to those mental states, and it explores some of the factors that might impact a person's theory of mind, including autism, schizophrenia, etc. So, and that's an end quote. So, in other words, to properly prompt your mind, you have to understand your own beliefs and emotions, past experiences, etc., and you have to be willing to accept that others may not see things, they may not see the world the same way that you do. That is, you have to recognize you could be wrong. If you have a mind for learning, then you can engineer prompts for your brain so that it produces accurate answers rather than mere confirmations of your own biases. So now let's go to and take a look at uh, Krishnan's uh, blog post. The blog post starts out with Arthur reminiscing about his path, uh, past in the 10th grade. Uh, he attended a large book fair with his family, and there was a uh, group that was demonstrating uh, memory techniques that had a lot of people at a around. So Mr. Krishnan volunteered to go on stage to learn the techniques and demonstrate the results. And he was able to memorize a string of 50 random words in just 10 minutes and recount them back in any order that he was asked. So one of the techniques that he learned was self-hypnosis, where he repeated positive affirmations to himself uh, three times a day after that book fair. And that led him to scoring second in his school on a standardized test, which was far better than his past uh, results would have predicted that he would be able to score. So fast forward to today, as he started to work with ChatGPT, he saw some similarities to what he had learned in the past. Quote, he said, however, the mysteries of self-hypnosis really started to unravel in an unexpected place. When I was tinkering with ChatGPT, for those who don't know, it is a type of artificial intelligence, specifically a large language model, or LLM. Think of it as a large, huge virtual brain that can understand and generate human-like text in response to your prompts. I found it really fascinating how just telling an LLM that you are X and you do Y and Z seem to instantiate a completely new personality that speaks, acts, and behaves in a different way. Every prompt somehow makes the model take a different path and produce a corresponding result. Now, and as an example of that, I have prompted my version of ChatGPT to use rational thought and critical thinking in its responses and to respond as if it was an atheist scholar. That produces completely different results than it would if I had asked it to give a Christian or religious response. Now, going back to the blog, the author says, Quote, I think it is illustrative to think of our brains as, as LLMs or large language models. Our brains are models that are continuously trained and shaped by large amounts of data from external and internal stimuli. 
All stimuli also activates a specific neural pathway in our brains and generates a response, thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, just like LLMs do. With self-hypnosis or other techniques, um, he was, that is, the author says he was intentionally self-prompting himself every day with seeds of positivity, confidence, and hard work. Unbeknownst to him, these seeds were growing into fruits of achievement. So he said, what does it mean then to prompt engineer yourself? Quote, we are increasingly bombarded with stimuli. Now more than ever before, some other people, media, and our own thoughts are rising from past memories and programming. I'd posit that we are unconsciously and unintentionally about the majority of the stimuli and resulting response, but they gradually impact our personalities, our perceptions and actions, our peace and our joy. I'd go as far to say that they are the cause of all of it. This is also true, though, because nothing exists outside the world unless it is represented in our brains. Now, I have been working or watching rather a sci-fi series uh, where the antagonists are clones of different ages, um, and then one was altered uh, and was colorblind. He could not differentiate between the reds and browns, so to him, those colors, differentiations did not exist. And so uh, the p- point I want to make about that is everything that we hear, see, smell, and touch is processed in our minds. And if our minds misinterpret the prompts, it will produce a reality that is different than what really exists and will be different than what others see. And so that is why we need to prompt our brains with accurate information to produce accurate results. Now, back to the blog post. If you are feeling overwhelmed, unhappy, and out of control, it may be a sign that you are processing too many negative prompts, which are resulting in negative outputs and more prompts, creating a vicious cycle, which is similar to the doom loop that we talked about last week. You may need to, quote, clear that chat history and flush these prompts out with some prolonged escape from stimuli. That's the reason a good night's sleep, a hike in in nature or a meditation session often leaves people feeling calm, refreshed. The author also says drugs like psilocybin and marijuana have been known to show diminished activity in the default mode network in the brain and the the area that is associated with random prompt activity and increased connectivity in the more conscious parts of the brain. Now, for me personally, I don't necessarily advise advise psychedelics, but clearing your mind naturally is always a good suggestion. Um, But back to the article, on an ongoing basis, you need to intentionally select and filter your prompts by curating your environmental, social circles, information, diet, and your inner voice stemming from values, desires, and aversions. In other words, your prompts can come from self-talk, and many do, but prompts can also come in other ways like the media you consume, what you focus on, and how you respond. Now, there is a technique in NLP that indicates, for example, that you cannot smile and respond in anger. The act of smiling makes that difficult, if not impossible. So that is a physical way that you can prompt your brain to respond the way you want to. If you feel yourself getting angry, just smile and the anger will diminish, if not entirely go away. You you also uh, want to intentionally prompt yourself, though, with positive prompts that make you happier and harmonious uh, with techniques like mindfulness, journaling, self-hypnosis or affirmations, vision boards, gratitude, meditation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and I think that that is 
is purposeful uh, that that is that is necessary but you don't want to just be positive when there's no reason to be positive the main thing is to to produce accurate results so if you have played around with the magic of chat gpt then you know the power of prompts on llms and now on your own brain the art of engineering your life experience lies in your ability to curate and respond to the prompts so that is you both curate the prompts you want and you respond to the prompts in the way that you want, both internally and externally, regardless of whether the prompts come in from from either internally, so it like self-talk or externally from the media, etc. All of those shape your perception and actions. So it's about intentionally fostering a healthy mental and mental environment, as well as being mindful to the physical and social environments that you engage with. This isn't about eliminating all negative prompts as challenges and adversity are integral to growth. Rather, it's about cultivating uh, intentionality, enabling you to navigate life's prompts with grace, resilience, and ultimately happiness. So that's the end of the blog post. But I would add that it is also about recognizing the types of output puts that certain prompts elicit from your brain. Uh, If, for example, uh, a, a person... Uh, shows um, if a, if a person or a show or a platform, etc., always leaves you angry. That is, if there's a particular news show that you watch and it always makes you angry. If you're always angry when you're on Facebook or Twitter, then perhaps you should drop those those inputs. Um, what we need to do is to prime our brains with prompts, both internally and externally, that produce a world that we want to live in. This isn't about positive thinking. It is about critical thinking that produces responses and that those responses include actions that are designed to optimize reality. It is not about denying that evil or or bad people, ideologies, etc. exist in the world. It is about living in a world where that those things do exist, but we live there and to the best of our ability uh, trying to make that a better place uh, and to make it a better place, not just for us, but for as many people, uh, other people as possible. So that is it uh, for this week's uh, philosophy segment. And the main thing is to prompt your brain to produce the kinds of results that you want to see in the world. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll cover the news. All right, welcome back and welcome to the news. So first up in the news, I want to talk about politics. And on the political, um, for the political story today, I'm just going to talk about a collection of stories. But overall, I am uh, titling it Obama, the embodiment of hope for some, the embodiment of fear for others. So I was watching a news show last week where one of the guests talked about the current state of politics Um, and said that the current discord was exacerbated by the election of Barack Obama. He said at the time, Obama represented the embodiment of hope for some and the embodiment for fear uh, for others. In other words, Obama's election to president was a positive shock for some and a negative shock for others. And this, I think, can be seen also in the those people, mostly white progressives, which I still find hard to believe even existed, 
that voted for Obama both in 2008 and 2012, but voted for Trump in 2016. Because those individuals, the only way they could do that is after observing things under Obama uh, for the for the eight years of his presidency, they decided that they did not want a multiracial representative democracy. They wanted to reclaim white privilege. Obama went from representing hope to these people to representing their worst fears. And their worst fear was that all men and women were created equal uh, and needed to be treated equally. Almost everything in politics these days can be traced back, in my opinion, to the election of, of, uh, of Obama. Now, it is not that the racism didn't start until Barack Obama, because it was before that. But Barack Obama's election is what started the white backlash against progressive momentum. What Trump and his MAGA maggot minions are attempting to do is to kill the hope expressed in Obama's presidency and quell the fears of the white populace that does not want to share power or any goddamn thing else that they have. So the topic of the political news segment this week is the current uh, status of the GOP nomination. So the ex-president and the future felon is way ahead in the polls while his rivals fight one another for the crumbs that fall out of his mouth as he gorges himself on the primary voters. The field has narrowed uh, to primarily DeSantis and Haley, though there are still some others uh, that are in the race running, but their aggregate poll numbers won't even match the lead that Trump has over second place. Now, Ms. Haley, uh, Ms. Haley's allied super PAC has spent $3.5 million on ads and other expenditures attacking Mr. DeSantis in the last two months in, the, in Iowa and New Hampshire, according to federal records. But uh, not a dollar of her money has been explicitly spent to oppose Trump, despite his dominant overall lead. Now, the DeSantis Super PAC has spent 10 times more money criticizing Ms. Haley in ads than any other expenditures uh, uh, than anything against uh, Mr. Trump. The, the records also the record show. So uh, Mr. Trump's team has basically gleefully greeted the battle be, uh, between the two uh, second place people running in second place. James Blair, the national field director for Mr. Trump, said that Ms. Haley and Ms. Mr. DeSantis are trying to bludgeon themselves for the title of first loser, end quote. Now, Ms. Haley and, Ms. And, and Mr. DeSantis are trying to lock down second place because they believe that Trump will either be in jail or a corrected, uh, convicted felon by the time of the election and that second place winner uh, will be the nominee. But I seriously doubt that. Even if Trump is convicted, he will appeal, and the appeal process would not be concluded by the end of the election. And I am sure that even if he was convicted, his supporters will still vote for him. There is nothing in the Constitution, as an example, that says that a convicted felon cannot run, and therefore there's also nothing in the Constitution that says a convicted felon cannot win the, the presidential election. And so I don't see anything that is going to derail Trump's path to the nomination and therefore no path uh, for the second place finisher in the GOP uh, uh, primary to win. So even though Trump has not won a single primary and has no votes to, and no votes have taken place, there is still speculation about who he would choose as a running mate. Now, the only consensus that of people about that point is uh, the is that it will not be Mike Pussy uh, Pence. 
uh, he's not going to be the VP. But the potential candidates are all scary uh, for uh, a continued democracy, and they range from Tim Steppenfetchit Scott uh, to Tucker Fuckboy Carlson. And you can bet that whoever Trump selects, if he wins, uh, it will be someone that promises to shut the fuck up and do whatever they're told. And there will be no one in the second Trump administration uh, from from vice president to anyone in his cabinet or administration that would dare to tell him no. So in the end, the, the current state of the GOP nominating process can be described as a shitstorm uh, that is building strength and will likely be a Cat 5 shit hurricane by the end of the process. Now I'm going to cover uh, one other topic this week, uh, the pandemic of police violence as well, uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. So... Um, uh, well, first of all, let's go ahead and get to that. So, so basically, um, what I wanted to say about the the political structure is that is that um, Trump is far ahead. Uh, the two people that have the second place right now are thirty to forty points behind Trump uh, in every race where polls have come out, uh, and they are bludgeoning each other in an attempt to, uh, and hoping that Trump somehow falls off and then they uh, will scoop in, but that's not going to happen. So now on to police violence. So uh, I, I want to cover that topic as a pandemic that is against black people, mostly black men. So my girlfriend and I watched the Netflix series trial four uh, on, which was about a black man that was wrongfully convicted and spent 22 years in prison uh, and, and many more years under criminal indictment. His first two trials, uh, and his name was Sean Ellis, uh, ended in mistrials with the majority of the jurors voting to acquit, but the third trial ended in his conviction. His new attorneys after that uncovered a a huge deluge of uh, police misconduct uh, that would have impacted the trial where he was convicted, uh, and so they got him a new trial, and in the end, after bringing out even more um, um, misconduct by the police, Uh, In the end, the prosecution decided to drop all the charges and Ellis eventually received a six million, 16 million dollar settlement for his trouble. But that, of course, did not and could not make up for everything, everything that he lost over the years. Now, lest you think that because that story happened in the 80s and 90s uh, and the trial, the trial did conclude, I think, in 2018 or 2019 when it was just dismissed. If you think that that's just an old story, then here is something that has happened recently. Quote, for nearly two decades, a loose band of sheriff deputies roamed impoverished neighborhoods across central Mississippi County, meeting out their own version of justice. Narcotics detectives and patrol officers, some who called themselves the goon squad, barged into homes in the middle of the night, accusing people inside of dealing drugs. They handcuffed or held them at gunpoint and tortured them into confessing or providing information, according to dozens of people who say they endured or witnessed the assaults. They described the violence that sometimes went on for hours and seemed intended to strike terror into the deputy's targets. In the pursuit of drug arrest, deputies in the Rankin County Sheriff's Department shocked Robert Jones with a taser in 2018 while he lay submerged uh, in a a flooded ditch and rammed a stick down his throat until he vomited up blood. 
During a raid that same year, deputies choked Mitchell Hobson with a lamp cord and whiteboarded him uh, to simulate drowning, he said, and then beat him until the walls were spattered with his blood. That raid took place at the home of Rick Loveday, a sheriff's deputy in a neighboring county who said that he was dragged half naked from his his bed at gunpoint before deputies jabbed a flashlight threateningly at his buttocks and then pummeled him relentlessly. The string of violence may have continued unchecked if not for one near fatal raid in January. This past January. So according to the Justice Department investigation, deputies broke into the home of two black men, Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker, shocked them with tasers and threatened to rape them. Deputy Hunter Edwards shoved the barrel of a gun into Mr. Jenkins' mouth, supposedly not really realizing that a bullet was in the chamber and pulled the trigger. Mr. Jenkins was grievously injured. The incident was thrust into the national spotlight. And in August, five deputies and a police officer pleaded guilty to criminal charges. So these cops felt like they that they could do what anything they wanted and whatever they wanted to do, especially the black men. Now, why did they feel that way? Because it was true. They could. If it had not been for the shooting, they would still be terrorizing people today. The police are the worst gang members. They are sanctioned by the state to brutalize people with usually no repercussions at all. In this particular case, uh, because they shot somebody in the face, uh, they did face uh, repercussions and were um, uh, sentenced for criminal behavior. All right, uh, let's go on to the religious news this week. And what I want to talk about in religious news is Christian values. So Christians are always talking about their values and how they are for God and family and the country, yet everything they support is on the wrong side of an issue. So case in point, social social media users shared a video showing Nancy Wilson, the wife of Idaho pastor Doug Wilson, speaking about an incident in which she sought to teach her daughter Rachel a lesson about respecting her parents. Quote, and this is this is the pastor's uh, wife talking about her daughter. Her daughter's name is Rachel. Quote, Rachel was visiting a friend. She was probably three or four. And our neighbor had little kids. So we would trade back and forth. Nancy Wilson said in the video. So I went to pick her up. And when I walked in, she said, oh, is it time to go? So I thought perfect opportunity. I got her home. I didn't address it right there, but I did give her a spanking. End quote. Wilson went on to explain that she informed her daughter that she should react much happier when she comes to pick her up. Quote, so the next time she went over there, I did the review. Now, remember, when I come, you're going to say, hi, mom. You're not going to say, oh, I don't want to go, Miss Wilson said. Then when I picked her up, it was just all that. The video went viral with some users receiving more than a million views for their posts. And one of those uh, posts was, here is Nancy Wilson, pastor's wife and homemaker, author of, quote, a practical guide for Christian grandmothers, talking about how she spanked her toddler for not being happy to see her, one of the uh, posters said. So this mother is an author of a book on how to be a good grandmother, and she's recounting a story about she hit her four-year-old daughter because she was having fun at her friend's house and didn't want to leave. She terrorized her daughter and taught her to lie to appease her mother, which is not a value that I would like to see replicated in the world. 
Now, I conclude the segment this week with a review of the Ten Commandments, which uh, I consider, are considered rather by Christians to be the basis for their morality and therefore the foundation of their values. And I'm using an article from the uh, Freedom uh, from Religious Foundation for this discussion. Quote, critics of the Christian Bible occasionally can score a point or two in discussions with the religious community by noting that the many teachings of both the Old and New Testament that encourage the Bible believer to hate and to kill. Biblical lessons that history proves Christians have taken most seriously. Nevertheless, the Bible defended is apt to offer as indisputable an indisputable parting shot, quote, but don't forget the Ten Commandments. They are the basic Bible teaching study the Ten Commandments, end quote. So the author of this article from the Freedom of Religious Foundation says, do study the commandments. They epitomize the childishness, the vindictiveness, the sexism, and the inflexibility and the inadequacies of the Bible as a book of morals, and therefore as a Bible as a book of values. Actually, only six of the Ten Commandments deal with an individual's moral conduct, which comes as a surprise to most Christians. Essentially, the first four commandments say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images or bow down to them. And if you do, I'll get you and your kids and their descendants. Three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. And four, keep the Sabbath holy. So the the first four of the Ten Commandments say that you should not worship another god. But if there is only one, then what the fuck? sense does it make to say that there's a commandment that you shouldn't uh, work another? How's that going to impact what you do or don't do morally? The, the, the second one is that you shouldn't create idols. And if you don't, and, and that if you do create them, don't bow down to them. And if you do create them and bow down to them, then God will kill you and your children and your children's children on and on. So how is that a moral representation? What value does punishing the children of wrongdoers imply? And then the third, or, or the uh, the the third um, of the first four, says that you shouldn't call God's name unless you really mean it. And again, what is the value expressed in that? And then lastly, the last of the four of the first four say that you should consider a day of the week, which is debatable about which day that is. Some say Saturday, some say Sunday. That you should say that it's special and you should keep it different from all the others. And I agree with that because I keep Sunday holy. It's a day to stay home and watch fucking football. And so that's a good value to me, I guess. So the exact terminology um, of the Ten Commandments is found in chapter five of Deuteronomy. Two other versions of the Ten, Ten Commandments um, do exist, and they can be found uh, in the Old Testament. One version in Exodus uh, 20 differs slightly from the Deuteronomy version, while a third in uh, Exodus 34 is wildly different, containing commandments about sacrifices and offerings and ending with the teaching, thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's milk. And so uh, the uh, the Deuteronomy, um, the, uh, the the chapter five of Deuteronomy is where uh, most of the Ten Commandments uh, that are referenced come from. So in, in essence, the first four commandments all scream that the Lord thy God is an uneasy, has an uneasy vanity, and like most dictators, uh, must resort to threats rather than intellectual persa- persuasion uh, to promote a point of view. 
Uh, if there were an omnipotent God, you can imagine him or her being concerned if some poor little insignificant creature, creature put it around and made a graven, graven image. Do you think that any God possessing the modicum of good will that you could expect to find any neighbor uh, that would want to punish children uh, even into the third and fourth generation because their fathers could not uh, believe in them? How could anyone uh, not perceive the pettiness, bluster, bombast, and psychotic insecurity behind the first four commandments? And we're supposed to respect this. So the next of the commandments is first, uh, honor thy father and mother, which is a fifth commandment. And this is related to the story uh, that I went through about this woman uh, spanking her child for not being happy to see her. And uh, and this is, of course, is an extension of the authoritarian rationale behind the, behind the first four. Honor cannot be bestowed automatically by an honest intellectual. Intellectually honest people can honor only those who, in their opinion, warrant their honor. The little girl, Rachel, did not honor her mother. She wasn't happy to see her mother. She was responding out of terror because her mother spanked her and told her the next time she came in to see her, she better say she was happy. So the biologic uh, fact of fatherhood and motherhood does not in and of itself warrant honor. Until very recently, parenthood was not a matter of choice, uh, and it's still a mandatory, not optional happening for the many of the world's people. Why should any child be commanded to honor without further basis? Parents who become parents by accident, who didn't even plan to have a child, uh, as an example. All of us know children who have been abused, beaten, or neglected by their parents. What is the basis for honoring there? How does the daughter honor a father who sexually molests her? Honor only those who merit your honor would be a more appropriate teaching. And if that includes your parents, great honor your children would have been a compassionate commandment. So commandments six through nine are those that say thou shalt not kill, thou shalt commit adultery or steal or bear false witness. Obviously they have merit, but even they need an extensive revision. The kill in self-defense is regrettable, but it is certainly morally defensible. Imminent sensible conduct. It is, it is, that is, if you kill out of self-defense, that is imminently sensible conduct. So the administration of a short, uh, of a shot or a medication that will end life uh, for the terminally ill patient is all who wishes to die is also imminently sensible and morally defensible. Adultery, the subject of the seventh commandment again, raises a question of an absolute ban. For the most part, fidelity in marriage uh, is a sound rule. If that's what the two people that are committed to that marriage want, but, and that, if that's what they want, that will make for happiness. But some marriages may outlast affection and some couples may agree to live by different rules until relatively recently, uh, recent times, Christian marriages were not dissolved except by death. So the ban of divorce coupled with the ban of adultery obviously created great distress. Adultery is, is meant to be remembered involves an act between consenting adults. Uh, So if it's between consenting adults, how could that then be a moral uh, issue? How much more relevant and valuable would it have been, for instance, uh, a commandment that forbids the violent crimes of rape and incest? But those crimes are uh, are not prohibited in the Ten Commandments. 
Now, thou shalt not steal raises a question regarding the usefulness of a blanket condemnation and may put squatters' rights ahead of public and private welfare. Should people who are cold or ill steal to ameliorate their situation? Should the child who is hungry steal? Surely this commandment cries for some amending clauses. One is reminded of the comment of Napoleon, who really had uh, religion figured out. He said, quote, how can you have order in a state without religion? For when a man is dying of hunger near another who is ill of, uh, of, of surfeit, he cannot resign himself to this difference unless there is an authority which declares it. God wills it thus. So religion is excellent stuff for keeping people quiet uh, when they see um, uh, discontinuities in, in life. So in general, to bear false witness is construed to mean don't lie, and that is a valuable moral precept, uh, except again that it is stated as in, ab in absolute terms. Lies have saved lives. Lies have saved lives, and they have prevented uh, relationships, uh, or preserved relationships, rather, and, uh, and every day they save her feelings. The truth is not always a reasonable or a kind solution. Interestingly, in biblical times, the dictum not to bear false witness against a neighbor was a tribal commandment and meant to apply only to persons within the tribe. It was quite all right to bear false witness against strangers. And then finally, the 10th commandment, which relies on the feminist, uh, on feminist blood, says, neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's, your, thy neighbor's wife, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or his ass or anything that is thy neighbor's. In addition to raiding a wife with an ox and an ass, the Bible lawfully overlooks the woman who might desire her neighbor's husband. Covetousness somehow does not seem like such a crime. If you can have a comfortable house or a productive form, uh, what is the great harm in wishing that you, if you can't have that, what is the great harm in wishing that you did? Covetousness may not be productive and it might be petty, but to make it a big bad deal out of this is ridiculous. Bible apologists sometimes will excuse the triviality of the 10th commandment on the basis that to covet uh, is a more uh, superstitious age meant to cast an evil eye, which of course is fucking stupid. Someone who coveted thy neighbor's house was purportedly casting an evil eye on that property with a view toward its destruction. Whether ones accept the apologist's definition of covet or the more popular meaning, the 10th commandment lacks real importance. So in ending, there is no such thing as Christian values or values based on any religion at all, for that matter. Values are individual as is morality, except for some uh, community affirming values like banning murder and theft uh, most everything else is just a decision between a con consenting adults. Whenever Christians talk about their values or their morals, they are most likely trying to make you live by their rules, whether they work for you or they don't. Their rules generally hurt others. Homophobia is a Christian value. Misogyny is a Christian value. Racism is a Christian value. Hate, violence, and tolerance are all Christian values. I, of course, would rather be a pagan than to spread deceit and terror masquerading as a value. All right, that is it for the religious news this week and for our overall episode. So we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll close out things for this week.
All right, welcome back. And as I said in the intro, I want to close things out this week um, with a story that I'm titling, not a handout, this is a hand up. Now we have, as black people, a lot of gaps that we need to deal with. We have wage, wealth, and health gap, our, our gaps, as an example, are just a few. Uh, but many of those gaps are exacerbated by the education gap. Now, here's a story about an organization that is at least uh, trying to help close the education gap. Quote, it was a day to celebrate black excellence in black culture and take home some cash. Seattle Public School students from across the district flocked to the sixth annual Seattle Black College Expo at Rainier Beach High School on November the 4th. Powered by the National College Resource Foundation, or the NCRF, the event housed more than 50 two-year and four-year colleges and universities, including historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, and trade schools uh, as well. Representatives from the armed forces were also on site to share opportunities with students. Nichelle Page is a project manager for the Office of African-American Male Achievement with a focus on high school transition success. She works with Black Student Union advisors across the district to establish a cohesive unit within SPS. She played a pivotal role in getting the Black College Expo hosted at Rainier Beach. Quote, the joy that is happening here right now is because our students get to see there are colleges out there that want them, that look like them, and that understand the culture, Page said. They have a history in our community, and they're being accepted. Seeing all these people here tells us that it is not only needed, but it's wanted, end quote. Now, Ryan, a senior from Ingram High School, received more than $90,000 in scholarship offerings. Several others from SPS High Schools received on-the-spot acceptance letters and scholarships from HBCUs in Tennessee, Arkansas, and South Carolina. Five SPS students were awarded $1,000 scholarships, and NCRF has awarded uh, over $1.5 billion in scholarships uh, since its existence and has helped more than 1,500 athletes as well get athletic scholarships and place thousands of students in internships and careers. The organization is on a mission to close the gap in education achievement, workforce, and economic disparities. So though this particular event was in Seattle, uh, NCRF sponsors event, events all over the country, and with their lifetime scholarship awards of over $1.5 billion, they have helped a lot of students uh, to clo help close the education gap. So we need more organizations like this to cover every gap that we have to deal with in the Black community. And so I congratulate them on that effort and wish them continued success. All right, that's what we have for the overall episode this week. So I'd like to remind you, if you have any feedback for what you heard, send an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com. The intro music is Transcend by K.I.R.K. I'd like to remind you the outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, and a bunch of other platforms. But if it's not on the platform where you like to consume your podcast, send me an email and I'll be sure to get it added. Once it's there, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if it's a feature of your platform, give me a five-star review. 
and I leave you with these words from Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want the rain without the thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Thanks for listening, everyone, and until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.